everybody. Welcome to episode six of Literary Disco, the Treasure Island, the three exclamation points episode. In this episode, we'll do a bookshelf revisit in which Todd, Julia, and I will take something down from our bookshelves to talk about. And then we will welcome author Mark Haskell-Smith to the podcast. Mark is the author, most recently, of the nonfiction Cannabis Quest book, The Heart of Dankness. We'll talk about his book and then the novel that he chose for us to read, Treasure Island by Sarah Levine, a book that brought a rare consensus to the disco. Awesome. The consensus was awesome. <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> and finally, in our last segment, we welcome back Todd's poet voice. Ah, welcome back, poet voice. I'm your host, actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me is essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel and novelist and critic Todd Goldberg. Welcome, guys. Hi. Hello there. So who wants to go first on the uh, the bookshelf? Well, as usual, my bookshelf revisit really isn't a bookshelf. Great. Yeah, wait a minute. I just want to clear something up, John. We don't talk about bookshelves themselves. I have, I have two things to talk about in my bookshelf revisit. One is an actual book. One is an article that I know at least one other person in this room has read. Well, okay, so here's what I'm thinking about. First, I'll tell you about the book I'm thinking about. Um, my all-time favorite writer, um, my BFF, though... I suspect he does not think of me as his BFF because we don't really know each other. Richard Ford has a new book out this week called Canada. Mm. Um, his first book since uh, the very large Frank Bascombe concluding trilogy novel, The Lay of the Land. Um, but his new book, Canada, um, is out right now. And F Richard Ford was, like when I was starting out, he taught me how to write by reading his books. And I wrote a series of very derivative Richard Ford short stories for many years afterwards. <laughs> I was really influenced as a young writer by um, what are commonly called the dirty realists. You know, so the Richard Fords, the Tobias Wolfs, the Raymond Carvers, folks like that, because that's who we were, we were reading, um, you know, in, as an undergraduate, essentially. Um, but Richard Ford's book, Rock Springs, his first collection of short stories, that was the book that stopped me from reading just genre fiction. So prior to that point, I'd read mostly just, you know, Stephen King books and things like that. And then I read Rock Springs, and I was like, oh, my God. This is how you can write about real people in bad situations and not have it be genre fiction. Because his, his early stories sometimes go towards the noir. But the book of his I want to mention um, is a book of his actually called Wildlife that is not a very well-known book of his. It's a very short book. It's about, I don't know, 175 pages or something like that. And it came out in 1989 or 90. And the interesting thing about his new book, Canada, is it's the first book that he's written that returns to the style that he was using when he wrote Wildlife. And it's also the style that he used when he wrote um, a lot of his early short stories. It, and it's this very spare, um, very confessional style, whereas his style that he used for the Frank Bascom novels, so uh, Sports Rider, Independence Day, and Lay of the Land, his more um, well-known novels and he got the, uh, the Pulitzer Prize for Independence Day. And then, of course, it was that fantastic movie with Will Smith. Um, not the same story, by the way. Your joke was way too highbrow for us. <laughs> for, we were ready to believe it. We were like, oh, he wrote about aliens? I don't know. Yep. But I, I, I picked up Wildlife again, and it's just a very simple story. And um, it's about a boy who's uh, living in Montana, and his mother and father are having marital problems, and his father goes off to go fight a fire. And it concludes with a, another fire, an emotional fire, a, a conflagration of 
this couple. So it's a, it's a sort of fascinating story. And I picked up Canada. I haven't bought it yet. I just saw it in the store. And it's written in that very same style. And I heard him interviewed um, on, at the Wall Street Journal. They had a little video interview of him recently. And um, he was talking about how he wrote it at the same time. He's, he came up with the idea at the same time that he was writing this novel. But it took him 20 years to get back to it, which I thought was, oh, my God, that's just, you know, that's crazy. You have this idea for a novel and it takes you 20 years to write it. But then the weird thing um, is I went back and I, um, I did an interview with Richard Ford um, when his book A Multitude of Sins came out. Now, this was 2005, I think, 2004. And at the time, he was saying, I, I asked him, you know, how do you see the next 20 years of your life shaking out? Are you going to be a guy like Updike who writes until he's, you know, basically until he dies? And he said, well, I know that I want to write another Frank Bascom novel, and I want to call it The Lay of the Land, and that book came out. And then he said, and I'd like to write a book called Canada that's been on my mind. And so this was, you know, this was almost a decade ago that he said this to me in this interview, and wow. I, I had forgotten about it completely, and then there it was. Um, so anyway, Richard Ford, he, he's not one of those writers that I think young writers gravitate towards. He's not in vogue necessarily. He's an old white guy. Um, but he's a real master of short fiction and long fiction, and uh, Canada has been getting really great reviews. But, you know, give Wildlife a look at, uh, too, if, if you get the chance. Now, my second thing, and I swear this will be quick, is my friend, Mark Haskell-Smith, who came on the show to talk about Treasure Island, just wrote this really cool article where he uncovers what bridge Anthony Kiedis was under during the song Under the Bridge. And, <laughs> That's awesome. And I love those kinds of articles that figure out these weird pop culture mysteries. So I was reminded also of someone figured out what day was Ice Cube's good day. Yes. <laughs> and I just, I, I would read nothing but a book where it finds all of the, the mysteries of songs. Like, you know, and please come to Boston. What cafe was he performing at? You know, I would. I would That's a great idea. Tell Mark to write that I would read that, that book. book all day long. And it's absolutely fascinating how he sort of narrows it down to this one specific bridge. So if you guys get a chance... Um, I think it was in uh, Vulture is the name of the website that mm -hmm. it was on, which is part of New York Magazine. Um, but if you just Google um, Under the Bridge, Mark Haskell Smith, you'll find the article. Or if you follow us on Facebook, we put a link up on the Facebook page about it, too, because we like cool shit about mysteries in songs. And that is yeah. my bookshelf revisit. All right. Uh, my bookshelf revisit is this book that... I actually read while we were in school together. I've never heard of this book outside of uh, my professor who suggested it, Askold Melnichik, and it's a Norwegian book called Hunger by Newt Hampson, and it is amazing. And I completely forgot about this book until I saw it on my bookshelf earlier today, and now I have to reread it. It's a really strange little book. It was written in... Um, like the 1880s, I think, or it was published in the 18, nine, in 1890, and it's it was Norwegian. This is a translation by Robert Bly, of all people, and the, the it's... poet Robert Bly? Yeah, I didn't realize that hmm. he... But I guess he, he's translated a bunch of stuff from a couple different languages, and the book is about... It's, it's really... It's a crazy book. It reminds me most of Dostoevsky. Really, it's very different from Dostoevsky in that Nothing really happens in this book. You know, there's not a real plot. What it is, it's literally about a starving artist. So it's about this writer who, it just follows like him during a couple of months of his life, and he's narrating, trying to get jobs so he can feed himself. And he's dying. Like, he's literally starving. And then he starts having these hallucinations while he's starving. 
And then they sort in turn inspire things that he can write to feed himself. And he starts realizing that he has this like dependency on uh, the sort of psychedelic state that his brain gets to when he's starving himself. And that that's oh, wow. fueling oh, his writing. And so it becomes this vicious cycle of like these, these you know, fantasies that he's having while he's starving to death and the artistic you know integrity he has to keep writing and it is brilliant and you get so locked into this guy's mindset nothing's happening in the book except like he's maybe following a girl for a couple chapters and but it doesn't matter you are on the edge of your seat because this guy is starving and it's so well evoked and not surprisingly newt hampson starved for 10 years like this is oh basically his story of like how, how do you starve writer. for 10 years he, he literally was writing articles in order to make just enough money to get bread and that would last him three days and then he would write yeah. another article yeah. and hope that it would sell and like he basically was just living like the struggling writer's life in oslo in 1880s so this book comes out of all this genuine experience and it is so amazing it is so i mean it's like one of the greatest um narrators i've ever come across and that's why it reminds me of dostoevsky is that the way that um you know crime and punishment uh raskolnikov has such a crazy voice you know like he's kind of going mm -hmm. insane and he's constantly talking to himself and going back and forth but it's a very similar in that sense of like this elevated heightened persona is just dragging you along. it also sounds a little bit like the narrator from um notes from the underground you know yes, i'm a sick exactly. man yeah. i'm exactly. a guilty man all that stuff yeah it's a very sort of it's and it's just it's really fun and it's really quick read it's short and like i said you just get really drawn into this character and um it's so worth it. And it's one of those books I've never heard people talk about, so I am trying to spread the gospel of Newt Thompson. Like, read it. It's awesome. Wow, that sounds so good. Yeah, that sounds really yeah. cool. It sounds it sounds slightly upsetting, and I'd probably... Yeah, I mean, there are times when it's not fun to read, when you're like, you know... <laughs> I mean, I remember feeling that way about The Road, too. Remember The Road? Yeah. Uh, when they're starving, mm -hmm. and you're just realizing how hungry you are reading the book, because you're like, oh... <laughs> Any of those books that have that weird sort of thing where there's a continuing problem for the narrator that's physical, like there's um, mm. a, a Straight Man by Richard Russo. He has a like a urinary tract infection the entire time, and so he <laughs> constantly is needing and trying to pee and oh. can't. And you know, for 400 pages, he has to pee. So stressful. Um, just... I remember when I, when I first read Lord of the Rings, like. Uh, for, for literally for like 400 pages because it's not interspersed like in the movies with the, right. it's just like Sam and Frodo walking around really tired. Right. They're just like they kept walking. They were tired. Yeah, that's exactly why I never finished the second book of Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. When I realized that they were just going to keep walking, I was like, no. No. Don't they have mass transit in freaking Middle Earth? <laughs> Well, they have a giant eagle, apparently, that comes and picks them up at the end, but they couldn't right. just take the eagle there. Just let Golem have it already, for God's sake. You guys would have the world end because you were too tired to walk. Okay, well, my revisit is one that I know you guys are going to like. So last week, uh, we built, or because of our previous sound issues, I had built a fort in my bedroom and as you guys may recall right before we started recording a bunch of books fell on my head because my cat knocked them over risking death for literary disco and one of the books that fell on me i hadn't seen for quite some time um and it is Catherine dunn's book on boxing it's called one ring circus it's a great book of essays about boxing and why it is actually 
interesting and intellectual. You know, it mm-hmm. really dismisses the whole concept of like, oh, it's just two dudes hitting each other. It's the most brutal thing ever. So um, that's a good book. But it reminded me how much I love Catherine Dunn's Geek Love. Oh, yeah. Um, has, oh, yeah. yeah. Um, I know Ryder loves this book because you're the one who recommended it to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but Geek Love is it's an amazing book. And I would have revisited it earlier, but it's the kind of book that every time it comes back to my house, I continue to give it away because people love it so much. It's a novel, and uh, it's about this circus family. The mother and father are are geeks, meaning in the original term, which is they in a freak show, they would bite off chickens' heads. Um, and they get married, and they want to build their own freak show, so they ingest all these, like, nuclear reactive chemicals, and then they have these freak babies, and they, one of them, you know, grows up to be a cult leader, and it's about their relationship with the world and each other and their own bodies and their beauty, and it's a three generations of this family, and it's just an amazing—it's the kind of book— that I'm always on the hunt for, which is that it's a really fast, good, intense read, but it's also the highest quality writing mm-hmm. you could possibly find. Yeah. So I I love this book. It, do you guys remember? Oh yeah, I mean, yeah. Also, oh, yeah. It's a long time. It's ago. also not a, 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 a like like hunger. It's not always fun to read. It's actually a very no. disgusting it's, book. Oh, it's it's, it's, it's really so disturbing. physical, um, and yeah. people are hurting themselves in the course of the book a lot, and it's really disturbing. Uh, the the coolest thing about that book, uh, you, I mean, you you brought up the fact that it, it has a sort of cult factor. Um, it was her reaction to reading about Jonestown. Like, that was how she responded. Mm-hmm. So it's really mm. a, about cults. Like, even though it has this whole circus freak element, it's, it, Catherine Dunn, it just becomes the most brilliant, outlandish way to explore something really that keeps happening, you know? <laughs> like, you have the Heaven's Gate people killing themselves. Right. You know, I feel like every couple of yeah. years we hear about the, some somebody who was able to convince other people to follow them off a cliff's edge in some way. And I just think that this book is such a... Oh, such an imaginative way to tell a story around that those issues, and it's it is because yeah, the cult leader, and I forgot this until I reread the summary. I mean, like the characters and the writing are still very vivid in my mind, but the cult leader has no arms or legs; he has flippers, so he really should be this vulnerable, weak person, but he just becomes mentally extremely domineering and abusive. Right. And I won't say what the cult is based on, but it is just this amazing concept that this person with no arms or legs could control thousands and thousands of people. I, I have to say, as an addition to uh, reading Geek Love, whoever wants to read Geek Love should immediately go out and get a song by Tom Waits uh, called The Eyeball Kid. And it's basically the same story as Geek Love in a song, and it's brilliant. Huh. It's, mm. it's, it's about... You know the eyeball kid, and he he's just a giant eyeball. And in the course of the song, you know, talks about him being a freak, and everybody treated him like a freak. Tom Waits has a couple songs about freaks. There's another one called Tabletop Joe, which is wonderful. It's about a guy who has no legs but can play the piano. I don't know. He, he has these songs about freaks, <laughs> and uh, and he pedals. has a whole album of circusy sort of music called The Black Rider, which is a great soundtrack for Geek Love. But the eyeball kid is the same story as Geek Love, which is that it goes from you know being treated like a freak as a giant eyeball to being worshipped as a sort of god because he's a freak. Mm-hmm. And um, hmm. I actually, one of my professors in college wrote a, a book 
uh, called Sideshow USA by Rachel Adams. And it's all about freaks in American culture. And it's oh, a wow. study That's of freaky freakness and what it means from all different angles. She, she talks about, you know, uh, uh, historical examples of, you know, people that were from brought from tribes in Africa and put in cages. Crazy real stories. And, um, you know, like... Well, they... think about Devil in the White City, where they where they bring in all... That's a nonfiction book, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, Devil in the White City by Eric Larson, that talks about the 1893 World's Fair in Chicago, where they bring in all these African tribes and pygmies and... Pygmies, Things yeah. like that, and put them on the, the first midway, as it happens, yeah. to be, you know, like curiosities yeah well there was a, there was amazing. a tribal guy that was actually put into the monkey house in the zoo in new york city um mm. oh yes i yeah, remember it's a classic story. and then there's also ishii who was like the, oh yeah the last, the, the last savage Indian. man yeah. yeah and you know these are all and she explores all of these real stories and they're tragic i mean they're just tragic but then she also talks a lot about geek love um so it makes a great addition to reading that book um because i i'm fascinated by issues of, of freak culture and freakness and I, I think do you guys really want to hear something strange let's hear something i know strange. you do I, I think all the literary disco people want to hear something strange too now is this going to be something weird on your body no this is going to be something weird where i live so i live um outside of palm springs and as a kid growing up here i moved here when i was 15 there was always this rumor that there was a little cove down the hill from bob hope's house and bob hope's house um, is this giant house on top of a hill in Palm Springs called, and they said this cove was called Midget Town, and that it was filled with former circus midgets who lived in this little gated community underneath Bob Hope's house in this weird little cove. And so we used to go and drive and try to get into Midget Town, but you'd go down this street, and there'd be a great big fence, and there'd be a very large gentleman standing at the gate, and you couldn't get past. So we never knew if Midget Town was actually there or not. But it's this rumor that now, 20 years later, 25 years later, it's still a rumor in the desert that underneath Bob Hope's house is Midget Town. Well, <laughs> that is so unbelievable. I know. And <laughs> I've now lived in and around Palm Springs for a lot of my life, and I've not seen a preponderance of little people <laughs> enough so that they would have there their is, own gated community. There is a real community in Florida, I think. Right. There is, right? Yeah, it's that. But that was like an ex circus, like uh, housing development, basically. Um, but even today, I, I could drive down the street and see if that place was there. But I prefer just to believe that Midget Town, which of course it's called, right. uh, the is most actually there. I mean, if yeah, if, if there's an offensive name for it, it's Midget Town. So you guys can go and Google Midget Town Palm Springs, and you'll see a bunch of what are probably apocryphal stories that will pop up on the internet. But when I was 17 and drunk off Paps Blue Ribbon, me and my friends would go looking for Midget Town. Which is the name of your next memoir. <laughs> <laughs> looking for midget also, town by todd goldberg <laughs> looking for midget town is actually a pretty good title it's well, offensive I might, I might use that actually no don't <laughs> all right well now that we've completely derailed our bookshelf revisit <laughs> stick around as we welcome mark haskell smith to discuss treasure island where pirate voice actually makes sense this time <laughs> that's good that's never true
Welcome back to Literary Disco. This is Todd, and we have a very special guest in our studios here in, um, where are we, Atlanta? Is that where the studios are? <laughs> right right in the middle? Atlanta is not the middle of Connecticut and, and Los California. Angeles. California. <laughs> hmm. I, I get hazy right around New Mexico. I don't really know where anything is. Well, suffice to say, we have a special guest currently in uh, writer's guest room, uh, actually. <laughs> and that is the fantastic author, Mark Haskell-Smith. Hi, Mark. Hey, Todd. Hey, everybody. Hey. Hi. Thanks uh, Thanks for joining us here in uh, in our little disco and for wearing the white suit. It's not required that you wear the white suit, but it's nice that you did. I can't resist. I love the nightlife. I like to boogie. <laughs> so Mark Haskell-Smith is... Um, an accomplished writer. Um, he's had a lot of stages in his career. He started out as a musician, uh, and then he began working in uh, television and film, and then he started writing books, uh, although the books and the TV were at about the same time, weren't they? No, I, I sort of always got fed up with Hollywood when I started writing books. He wrote four novels, um, Moist, Baked, uh, Salty, and Delicious, and then he decided, I've had enough with this making up shit, I'm going to learn about my favorite thing on the planet, and that is weed. And he wrote the book, The Heart of Dankness, Actually, uh, which I, just came out. I pitched a book about gelato, but no one was interested <laughs> in it, so I said, okay, how about weed? Uh, hooray, <laughs> You won't send me around the world to eat gelato? Fine. I'll smoke weed. <laughs> I'm hoping to one day do the great corn dog book, where I just travel around to small fairs, you know, with my carny friends eating meat that's covered in <laughs> corn-based products. Um, so Heart of Dankness just came out to rave reviews across the world. A lot of people uh, in the um, the underground of the weed smoking, I believe they call it, have hailed it as the greatest thing in the history <laughs> of print. Have you heard from Have you heard from the pot smokers? Have they been talking to you? Yeah, yeah, I've been getting some uh, some uh, I, fan mail, I guess, or. It, it, or it's like this weird fan mail. It's like, loved your book. A friend of mine's in jail. Can you do anything to bring his case to the world's attention? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. And, wow. and, I, and I say, no, probably not. I, I can't. Well, you know, that's funny. That was one of those things that I was wondering about is how do you feel about becoming a sort of champion of, I mean, because it's obviously a political issue you know with a lot it's fraught with a lot of tension do you i mean are you comfortable with that i mean are you happy to sort of take up the the cause of pot well for me i I mean yeah i mean i'm an observer right there are people who are activists who have been doing it for 20 30 40 years and they actually know what they're talking about um i i i know a little bit about it so i can and i and i can kind of bring this sort of outsider perspective to it right that and I'm not wearing tie-dyed overalls, so it gives me some credibility. That's the baseline of credibility. <laughs> I think it helps. I do get I do get people coming up to me saying, "Well, can you be a spokesperson for the cause?" And right. I'm like, "Well, that, that's what the book is doing." So you traveled uh, all around the the, uh, the world. You went to Amsterdam, and you you went up and down California, and also did, you didn't spend any time in Canada researching, did you? I don't yeah, I was that. in Toronto. Yeah. Oh, right for the for the festival out there. So if there's one thing that you want people to know about um, what dankness is. What would you say that it is? Well, you know, I mean, the interesting thing is dankness is something different to all different kinds of people. I mean, some for some people, it's just good or cool. And other people, it's sort of a pinnacle of a plant's genetic destiny. Um, but for me, what I, what I took away with it is dank is actually a culture. 
It's this underground where people are connected to their relationship through the plant. Right. And that's kind of cool, you know? It connects, you know, bankers in Dusseldorf with skateboarders in Buenos Aires and, you know, hipsters in Silver Lake, and they all have something in common, and that that is a, a pretty cool thing. That's dank, dude. <laughs> <laughs> now, do you see yourself continuing to write about this? Because your last novel, Baked, had a, a huge component taking place at the Cannabis Cup, which is what your book is about, the, the quest for the, the Cannabis Cup. Or are you now done thinking about and talking about this stuff? Well, I'll keep talking about it, but I, I don't want to write another book about it. I mean, the nonfiction came out of the fiction because I was researching the Cannabis Cup for my novel, mm -hmm. and then I met all these amazing people, and I was telling my agent about them, like, these people are great. You know, I was telling her funny stories, and she's like, uh, that's a, called a nonfiction book? Right. You Go should, and do that. We should sell this. <laughs> Stop uh, talking and start writing. Yeah, basically. <laughs> and uh, and so that sort of was like, so I just kept following the story. But now now I, there's another nonfiction thing I want to do, and I, and I actually owe Grove a novel. Well, so. and you don't want to piss off Grove because they don't come after <laughs> They know where I live. Can you tell us what your next nonfiction project did? Is, uh, is that top uh, secret? It's not super top secret. I mean, uh, besides the gelato thing. Uh, I am fully on board. Well, I had two ideas, and one I don't have the courage to do, so I will freely give this to anyone who wants to do it but i found that there's a city in southern france that is an all nudist city oh my god oh man even though there's a dry cleaners there <laughs> i'm like dude what do you dry clean towels i mean oh my god this whole thing should be done from the point of view of the dry cleaner. <laughs> maybe and there's also uh tour uh cruises on ships that are all nude cruises right. and i thought you could go to these places and take these cruises and then also inter interweave the history of nudism or naturism as they call it but, uh, you know... That is a great idea, but you've got to commit. I don't have to. <laughs> my wife was like, my wife's like, good luck with that one. Uh, so, yeah, I'm not going to write that book. But uh, there's all this food that's going extinct around the world. And so I'm going to write a book about that, I think. Which is a, another one of my boondoggles to be like, oh, there's, I hear there's some endangered wine in Italy. I'm on a plane. <laughs> this cheese in France, no one will ever taste it again unless I get there by midnight. So, Mark, we charged you with finding uh, a book for us to read. And you selected uh, Treasure Island by Sarah Levine. And I say it like that because it's Treasure Island with three exclamation points at the end of it. And um, I absolutely fucking loved this book. And I think I share that with uh, Julia and Ryder, which is surprising because I was pretty sure yep. Ryder was going to hate it because he hates a lot of things that I love. Me too. You thought I would hate it too? Todd and I had a bet going. Yeah. Oh, man. I loved it. I loved this book. <laughs> it's a good so book. T tell, us how you, tell us how you found it and, uh, and, and tell us what you like about it. I found it in the most random way. I was walking through Vroman's bookstore looking for something to read, and I was just on the new books table. I picked it up. I read the description I said. I read the first page. I'm like, this is great. It's so hard to find a great comedic novel with an unreliable narrator that's just batshit crazy, you know? <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of things that I like about this book, but um, it's almost a giveaway to say that she's nuts because, I don't know, as a young woman who values boldness, independence, <laughs> resolution, and horn blowing, I was like... It, for me, it started off, at least for a few pages, in a really realistic place. And I was like, yes, I deeply identify with this person. This person is me. And when she went off the deep end, it was it was an amazing comedic turn. It just, like, took you right down with you. Mm -hmm. 
with her. I felt the same way because I, I actually read Treasure Island a couple of years ago, not that long ago, in a children's literature course that I took. And so when she rediscovered Treasure Island, I was like, oh, I just rediscovered Treasure Island, you know, four or five years ago. I can't wait to see what she's... And then I was like, oh, oh, she's insane. And that turn <laughs> was wonderful to experience. So I hope we're not spoiling too much for our listeners. But uh, it's a remarkable book. We should probably talk about what actually occurs in the book. Uh, it's the story of a young woman who rediscovers the uh, Robert Louis Stevenson book, Treasure Island, uh, she had read it in fifth grade and not touched it since and never really considered it. And she decides that this book is her touchstone. It's going to change her life and um, and help her take charge. And uh, it becomes increasingly clear that it's not working. And in fact, <laughs> the book is ruining her romantic relationship and her relationships with her family members who are... Um, well, and it, it's pretty clear, though, that irrespective of the book, she didn't have what would normally be considered good relationships romantically no, or with uh, her family. No. She was fucked up before the book yes. showed up. Yes, this is true. Uh, but it's a hilarious book. Um, and, I mean, to me, I kept thinking about, I mean, because we talked about this before, about how part, one of the reasons that we wanted to start a podcast about books is because there's there's this culture of, of, of books as self-help. And... I felt like this was a great evisceration of that culture uh, because to me, you know, she thinks that she can learn life lessons from Treasure Island and yet, of course, completely misapplies all those wonderful <laughs> values that she finds uh, in her life. And, you know, she, she thinks that she's being bold when, of course, she's like becomes the more and more passive as the book goes on. And uh, I, I thought that was hysterical and, and actually pretty... Uh, insightful because I do think that a lot of people find a book and obsess over how it's going to change their life and fix all their problems and you know at the end of the day literature is just literature and enjoying a good adventure story about pirates can just be a good adventure story about pirates and we don't need to always pull from it these life lessons that are going to change who we are and how we act with our you know father or mother um or well but for her it was le it's always like She's fine, right? right? Everyone else is screwed up right. and crazy. Right. <laughs> right. It's narcissism. It's the narcissism of self-help culture. It's yeah. like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going to point out the problems in everybody else via this vehicle of this book. And I'm going to tell them to read this book and fix their, you know, and she's constantly upset that nobody else is reading Treasure Island and not. It's <laughs> yeah. Can I read a little passage in this vein? Like I like to. It's only like three sentences. OK, so this is towards the end. And she's talking about her mother. This was a woman who lived in a world in which nothing dangerous or exciting could be undertaken. A woman who devoted herself to the tedious, net-mending tasks of family life. She had subscribed to Bon Appetit for three decades and still had every issue arranged in chronological order. How could she have had a restless heart? <laughs> so great because, I mean, the big realization of this passage is that her suburban mother, stay-at-home mom, has more boldness, resolution, independence, and horn-blowing than herself. <laughs> which which we should explain are the four values that she pulls from the novel Treasure Island. She writes down, she starts taking note cards and filling them out with the, the tips and advice that she gains from Treasure Island. And, and those are the four core values, boldness, resolution, independence, and horn-blowing. And, and the, the sort of inciting incident, and this isn't spoiling anything that happens in the first ten pages or something, is she, she has this very bizarre job... Where she works basically, basically at like a, uh, 
The pet library. A pet library. <laughs> a convenience store zoo. I, would, yeah. <laughs> I kept thinking about it. Just this corner shop filled with animals. And uh, one day she decides to um, steal what she thinks is the petty cash from the uh, convenience store library of pets. And she goes out and she buys a parrot from a uh, another pet store uh, because, you know, she's now living Treasure Island. And while she's off buying the parrot, uh, something or someone breaks into the pet library and destroys it. And she loses her job. And now she's stuck with this massive parrot who uh, does not have the vocabulary she wishes it would have, but soon <laughs> picks up some touchstones from watching a lot of daytime TV, um, which, which you know, she, she has a better relationship with the parrot than she has um, with anyone else. There's, there's a, she has a sister that's in the book and her mother and father um, and a boyfriend named Lars. But there, there's a great line, this is sort of in the middle of the book, where she's talking about her sister. Uh, and she says, I worried about my sister if I made time to think about her at all. She didn't have many friends. Her devotion to her job seemed unhealthy. And then there was her weight. Pleasantly plump, my mother said, if pressed. But my mother was pleasant herself. And my father, who resembled a string bean, claimed judiciously that all of us were lookers. It's really a horrible human being. I mean, yeah, it's a book about self-delusion. I mean, that's what it seems right. to be. It's, it's, she is so delusional. And, and you are on her side because you're reading her perspective the whole time. And so the, the fun of the book and the comedy of the book is looking through... You know, the unreliable narrator factor is just, it's great. It's wonderful. It's a classic pic picaresque, you know. Yeah. It's like Confederacy of Dunces or Don I Quixote. It goes, that. it's part of that lineage. It's, Definitely. It's a warped little tributary off to the side, but it is connected to all that. Well, I actually, you know, I did think of Confederacy of Dunces. I was reminded also of White Noise. Did you guys ever read the White Delilah Noise? The Delilla book, yeah. yeah. There were a yeah. lot of parallels to White Noise. Like, I remember in White Noise how when they talk about how the TV is squawking and the sort of suburban you know, craziness of this family with the parrot screeching constantly in the background. It reminded me so much of those those scenes in White Noise. What I found so charming about this book was the voice. I mean, I've read other books, I think, with a similar voice. I mean, immediately came to mind. Have you guys read Capture the Castle? I Capture the no. Castle? No. By um, Dodie Smith. She wrote 101 Dalmatians, and it's like a similar age girl, and it's similarly lively, but it's not um absurd and then also the dud avocado by elaine dundee like there's this whole genre of books of like young women who are, have these like really spirited lively voices and great things happen to them they have you know little mishaps here and there <laughs> so i was like i know what genre this book is in i'm really enjoying this and then to just watch the slide down was just like the most pleasant you know mental deconstruction of this poor girl that <laughs> that I've read because it was just like great to watch this girl delude herself this far. And Mark, you write a lot of comic stuff, um, but this is a, a completely different kind of comedy. What do you see as the thing that, that makes us look at this and start to giggle versus look at it and say, oh my God, I can't go on a trip with this girl? Well, I think that it, because it's just so sort of honest and authentic. I mean, like it really, at the beginning, you're like, I know this girl, I'm with her. And then by the time she, by the time, it, you know, we should add that there is a, a, a 
grisly, horrible murder in this story that that you get <laughs> yes, that you burst is. out laughing yes. when it happens. Um, I so, can't believe they pull it off. Horrible sex as well. <laughs> yeah. Let's not oh, forget the grisly oh, horrible yeah. sex. Yeah. It's a very dark book, really. Yeah, right. in terms of events, it's incredibly dark. But you're you're right. You're laughing the whole you're time, like, and it's because of the voice. It's uh, Sarah Levine's voice is just so compelling and engaging. It just grabs you right away, and it because you really feel like I know this person, and right. and then once you're with her, then you're like it's like oh, wait, I followed this person into a really bad, dark alley, and I'm about to be killed. (laughs) And then it's too late. You're like, oh, fuck it, I'll just go. I can't believe that this is her first novel, because, I mean, you're right, the mastery of voice is... I think it's probably a true story. I think she probably is this person. Yeah, she probably did this stuff, yeah. And, you know, I, uh, did, did you meet her, Mark, at the book festival? Yeah, I spent some time with her. She was lovely, absolutely lovely, and I could totally see her. Absolutely, being this person. So, Sarah, if you're listening, get help. We're, this is this is a call to action. Well, what do you guys think? I mean, because I, I, I mean, do you think that there's much of it, like why Treasure Island? Why that book in particular? We live in a time when like everyone is saying you need to go on your life is an adventure or make your life an adventure. It's all this adventure stuff, adventure travel, adventure yoga, um, and. <laughs> And that sounds dangerous. And, um, I know, but but it's it's like here's a here's a woman who's like I need to live an adventurous life, and I've got this adventure story, so I'm going to model myself after it. And I think that that idea is sort of universal. It's in the zeitgeist. I mean, certainly pirates mm-hmm. are right. Yeah. Well, although it's funny because one of my favorite parts I can't find it is someone's like I really feel like you're picking and choosing the parts of this book that you're focusing on. <laughs> what about the pirates? What about all the bad guys and pirates? And she's like, they're so irrelevant. <laughs> Forget it. That's not what the book's about at all. So for me, it's like we all want to live an adventure, right? And so, and and the way she flips that whole idea on its head, like I'm living an adventure. Like, no, you haven't left your room or bathed in weeks. (laughs) (laughs) It's just that's what makes it so deliciously funny. Right. And I think also, you know, it's even if you haven't read it since you were in fifth grade, you have a vague recollection of what it is. Sure. So it also stands for, a, you know, a period of time where when you're a kid, you think, oh, anything's possible. I can go out and right. I can do downward facing dog on a zip line. Right. Well, I did find it interesting that there's this sort of, there's a theme throughout the book of grade school uh, because she, mm-hmm. she has a lot of, uh, you know, memories of not only reading Treasure Island when she was in fifth grade or whatever, but she reconnects one of the major plot lines says she reconnects with a girl from fifth grade who she's completely lost touch with. And then her... And that works out really, that works really out well. horrifically. <laughs> and then, of course, there's the, uh, the, the... Her sister, the job that she judges her sister for committing too much to is teaching grade school. So one of the sort of final scenes is in this... And I, I just found that interesting, like, as... A, I, don't, I don't really know what it means, but I did like that, that sense that this book had of the books we read in childhood and uh, the way the way those books shape us or don't or, you know, I, I, I don't really have much of a point, but I just <laughs> noticed that throughout the book that there was this constant discussion of, like, those formative years when we discover books and we discover, you know, friendships and what kind of person we're going to be. And, you know, you find out, of course, not surprising, that she was a horrific person in fifth grade and that she was so <laughs> superficial and she didn't pay any attention to the subjects that, you know, she should have. And, and so I, I wonder how much that, you know, uh, is a commentary on our education system or the way that, you know, the social lives you know, of grade school. Writer, I think I think it's easier than that. I think this character sort of reached her emotional peak at fifth in grade. fifth grade, right. you know, and she was also the best version of herself right. because in fifth grade, you're allowed to be this horrible, self-centered, awful person. Right. Um, but if you stay in that place, you know, 
you just become a, a crazy woman. But the other thing is that there's an interesting parallel between that time in her life and then sort of the post-collegiate time where she's graduated with a liberal arts degree and yeah. is only qualified to work in a pet store, right. which, you know, is sort of what you're qualified to do after you graduate fifth grade as well. Right. Say, with all four of us have degrees from liberal but arts I, but I do think, But I do think, Todd, that, like, everybody I know my age reads Harry Potter books and they mm -hmm. read children's books. Like, everyone, I feel like our literary culture is mostly stuck in fifth grade like i think that there's there's something to be said for the fact that everybody like it was the harry potter moment in the 90s i feel like when everybody my age started saying i know it's for kids but you got to read it and now it's hunger games or you know name your kids book that become huge bestsellers among adults and adults love it and they talk about them as you know and i find that interesting like i mean i, I that we don't we we, we look at books as sort of a chance to get back into that childhood. I mean, we've talked about that in a, in a positive way. Well, I think it's it's more than that, Ryder, though, because, I mean, what Treasure Island and Harry Potter have in common is just, like, a love for pure storytelling, right. you know? There's no pretense about it. It's just you want to know what happens to the characters, right. and that's really your main motivation <laughs> for reading the right. book. Um, but, I mean, I, I really enjoyed the plot line with the girl from her fifth grade class also because, well, first of all, that's ex that's grounded in reality. Mm -hmm. Like, a lot of girls could tell you what jewelry other girls were wearing mm -hmm. in fifth grade, which is sad, but true. <laughs> but, uh, but I also just, like, enjoy the idea of, like, how townies who move home interact. You know, they used to not get along, right. and now here they are, both townies, like, hang interacting at the deli. And it's just, it's it's so grounded in what a lot of people of our generation are doing or right. have to do. Or, you know, a lot of people are living right, at home, home. rereading the books. I mean, Ryder, you've talked about this. Rereading the books literally on their childhood bedroom right. shelf and, you know, being affected by them in right. a new way. Right. The, unfortunately, though, the, the books on, on uh, Ryder's childhood shelf were all Michael Crichton novels. That's a problem. So, <laughs> Ryder, if Ryder does a book like this, it's going to be called Congo! Three exclamation points. <laughs> Andromeda Strain! <laughs> Sphere! And don't, don't down talk Sphere. Oh, you love that Sphere. Was a, that was a goddamn classic. <laughs> I, I will add, though, that Treasure Island has the, the one scene that I think we could all, like, if your family tried to do an intervention on you, oh, it's the God. most honest, mm -hmm. authentic reaction to an intervention, I think, ever put to pa yes. paper. Yeah. So. And it's a yes. literary intervention, too. I love yeah. that. They're trying to, to, to intervene on her literary life. I, yeah. Is there anything more uh, yes. for her after the end of this book? And I guess it doesn't have to be. You can just enjoy the book for what it is, but... You know, what, what happens next to a character like this that is so irrevocably fucked up? Well, she makes that baby step, right? She At the end, there's like a little moment where she actually takes responsibility and does something very small. And then the fact is, at the beginning of the book, after because for me, like when I, re when I reread the beginning after I'd read the book, and she starts talking about, you know, in the aftermath of my adventure, I decided to write down the whole thing, starting with oh, my right. discovery. So, so then we know, like, for her, what's happened is she's now written her adventure story. I mean, what's funny is when I've been teaching this book, and when I taught it to the under, when I teach it to my graduate students, they all love it. I taught it to the undergraduates, they're like, you know, if I was Lars, I would have smacked her upside the head and, really? you know, like kicked her. You know, they hate the book because they hate her. They're like, they can't see past really? hate. They can't her. see past it. Interesting. They're afraid of becoming. Yeah, maybe. yeah they probably identify. But I think 
that it, it's sort of the reverse coming of age. It's it's mm-hmm. a, a coming of the your emotional crisis. Right. Um, and maybe that's why if you're 20 or 22, you know, you can't see that. But looking at it, you know, in your 30s or something, you look at it and you say, oh, God, you know, but for the grace of God, I didn't do the same damn thing. Right. You know, the, there are plenty mm, of times yeah. that you could have said, you know, like when Julia, when you were walking dogs for a living, at some point you must have looked at yourself and said, what the fuck am I doing? I'm $40,000 in debt to my graduate school and I'm walking dogs. Oh, God. Like, the only way to like this book... It's interesting that you say that, Mark, that they just don't like her. Because despite the insanity, I still like her. Because you know what? Kind of understand. <laughs> <laughs> no, I adore her. You know? Okay. Yeah, and, and that's that's the thing. Like, I was even with her. It's really interesting to think about, like, where the turn is, where you know... Where you're like, oh, she's a bad person. Because, like, even when she stole a $1,000, I was like... Okay, all right. I'm gonna buy this justification. Right. She Fine. might need this. All right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I don't think, you know, like when you're when you're before that moment in your life where you really like desperately need bold boldness, resolution, uh, independence, and horn blowing, you might not know how far you would really go to get right. them. Right. And yeah. by the end, she's willing to engage in swordplay. <laughs> she is willing to engage in swordplay. Well, Mark Haskell Smith, thank you so much for coming in, and thank you for recommending Treasure Island by Sarah Levine. Um, it is an absolutely fantastic book, um, and you guys should all go out and buy it if you haven't already. And Sarah, if you're listening, um, get the help you need. I think we can all agree with that. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, don't. Stay just the way you are. Uh. I like it. So for next time uh, on Literary Disco, I'm Todd with Julia and Ryder. And thank you again, Mr. Mark Haskell-Smith. It's a pleasure. All right, everybody. We're, uh, we're back to, uh, to do another edition of Poet Voice. Now, as you all know, um, poets read in a strange voice. It's that strange sing-song voice that I think is only acquired at coffee shops named Nectar or Sound or... You or know, something ground, someplace, higher grounds. Or higher ground or, grounds or beneath the grounds. Groundskeeper, Willie. <laughs> well, I like groundskeeper. <laughs> So uh, I like to um, I like to not go to poetry readings as often as possible, and um, when I am forced to go, I cannot not hear them doing their strange little poet voice. That upon my mother's foot I saw a goat. Mother, why did you rape me? They always sound like that. Um, so what we're gonna do uh, on a continuing basis is we're gonna we're gonna read some things in poet voice and. Uh, we're going to make Ryder and Julia decide which is a real poem and which is found text from somewhere. So are you guys ready? We are ready. Yeah, but I just experience? want to apologize to all the poets out there that you've just offended. I love poetry and I love um, poets. Um, I just don't want to hear it read aloud. I, I just can't stand to hear it read aloud. Um, so l- these are not full poems. Um, so these are just partial poems that I'm going to read, but there's three of them. All right, let me get my poet voice ready. 
So every poem will begin with the word mother mm. and will contain at some point the word upon. Um, because I feel like every poetry reading I've ever gone to contains those three things. Okay, so here we go. <clears throat> here we go. Mother, small as my nipples are, they demand room. And I feel as though the pelvis were female. <laughs> and it is the same puberty. The nipples swelled and pained upon. I feel as though the pelvis were female. And it is the same with the anus and the nates. I hate you, mother. Okay. It's a good one. That was a good one with the mother. Thing. Yeah. It, you know, yeah, it's not it bad. Yeah. Very sort yeah. of flowed together. Okay. Blow. All right. The uh. next one. <clears throat> Blow. All right. Here we go. Father, the flocks in the jar is softening. From the sphere of it, a blossom flutters upon, and the whole sagging thing makes me think of my mother flesh when she was elderly and it was wilting, keeping its prettiness in its old fangled gentleness. Mother, I hate you. Now, the interesting thing there is that mother appears in the actual thing I just read as its own thing. Yeah, interesting. All right, so you got that one. That was number two. And uh, number three. Number three. <clears throat> there is one congratulatory offering I waited for, but never received. Mother, a call from the president. I was disappointed I didn't get a telegram upon mother or a call from the president. I always thought this sort of thing warrants some kind of note of congratulations from the president. I hate you, Dad. <laughs> All right. So, which one of those is the actual the poem? second one? Yeah, it's either the, the first second. or the second one. But I feel like because the first one involved the pelvis uh, and, yeah. and all this, it was probably some sort of anatomical textbook that you found or uh, so and the second one actually had mother flesh which uh, i feel like would be a poem that you would pick if you had to pick a poem for this exercise you would have run to the mother flesh okay wait. all right so you believe the first one was what go ahead I think Julia. the first one was some kind of personal sex diary of someone i don't know where you would find that maybe is it yours <laughs> yeah because I'm constantly talking about my female pelvis. Um, I am very lean. The third one, okay, who achieved something that they would assume the president would send them a telegram? I don't know, Michael Phelps? He's achieved a lot. What do you think, Ryder? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. The third one is definitely, like, someone just, like, mid-interview or something talking about. Uh, but I feel like they probably were joking. Like, they were probably saying it ironically. Mm. Like, they achieved some sort of success, and everybody's like, wow, you've achieved a lot of success, and they're, you know. Uh, well, Julia is a savant, uh, as the first quote is from a book called Sexual Metamorphosis, <laughs> an anthology of transsexual <laughs> memoirs. <laughs> Edited by Jonathan Ames. That's awesome. Uh, and it comes from an essay written in 1886 wow. called Psychopathia Sexualis by Richard von Kroth Ebing. 
who was a German physician and neurologist. So it was written by a uh, man. Se- psychopathia, sexuality, sex. <laughs> blah, blah, blah. His Psychopathia Sexualis was a pioneering collection of 237 case studies in sexual pathology, which revolutionized the scientific understanding of sex and influenced Freud and introduced the terms sadism, masochism, and fetishism. Interesting. Wow. And so that was from. Uh, do you from own that. this book? Um, I do. I reviewed it a couple years ago. Uh, it came out. Uh, I think it came out in like 2005 or six or something like that. Mm. The the quote regarding the president comes from uh, Ricky Henderson's biography, Confessions of a Thief. Uh, this is a book I've had since I was twelve, um, and it is a biography, an autobiography of former Oakland Athletics outfielder Ricky Henderson talking about the day he uh, broke the stolen base record. Wow. Um, so not bad with the Michael so, Phelps. Like, was he joking or was he seriously no, no. like I thought the president Rick, would call me? Ricky Henderson was known to be um, a bit of a of an egotist. Mm. Um, so both of you figured out pretty much exactly what those things were. And then the poem actually is a really good poem. Um, by Sharon Olds, which was oh, in the I New Yorker, uh, December fifth, two thousand eleven, called "Still Falling for Her," and it, it continues on um, for several more lines. And it's a really fantastic poem that I'm unfortunately added my mother's to. But in fact, it begins: "The flocks in the jar are softening from the sphere of it. A blossom flutters, and the whole sagging thing makes me think of my mother's flesh when she was elderly and it was wilting." keeping its prettiness and its old fangled gentleness, which is, if you don't say it in fucked up poet voice, is a beautiful opening of a yeah. poem. Yeah. But it's that voice. That voice is she's, killer. She's like one of my favorites. She's yeah, like, it's, yeah. A, it's a great poem. I don't think she hates her mother. I don't think that's mm-hmm. No, it accurate. seems like she loves her mother. Yeah. You ruined it. It's as if I'm falling in love again with my mother through the gallow glass of my own oncoming elderliness i mean it's a heartbreaking yeah. and wonderful mm. poem that i've done a terrible thing to and i apologize to sharon olds who we know is a big fan of literary disco um so well done you two on poet voice you accurately discerned what was a fantastic poem what was a sex uh study and what was an athlete's bragging in his autobiography <laughs> <laughs> which is which is amazing because in a previous poet voice uh, writer accurately noted exactly who the quote was from that was turning into a poem, which was a quote from Newt Gingrich. We're amazing. Um, so you guys are pretty good. Yeah. Or I need to start working harder. And that'll do it for this episode of Literary Disco. Our theme song is by Sean Fox and remixed by Brett Marshall Efforts. You can follow us on Twitter at Literary Disco and like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash literary disco. Join us in two weeks when we discuss the classic high school novel, A Separate Piece. Thanks for listening. Bye.